It's, uh, it's an honor to be here this morning. I uh, feel the welcome. It's the first time I've met uh, any of you, but I hope it's not the last time that I see you. Um, my name is Joel Cady, and I live with my wife and three kids in Manhattan. Uh, and this is my first time on Long Island and in the Hamptons. So I'm so glad to be here. Uh, feel free to follow along with me. I'm going to read our passage. It's printed in the bulletin. It's uh, from the book of Revelation, chapter 4, and uh, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is God's good word to us. Why don't we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for promising to meet with us when we gather together in the name of Jesus. And so now we uh, pray that you would indeed meet with us, that you would speak to us and transform us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I spent several years uh, living in the Middle East. It's where I met my wife, where we got married. We, uh, we lived in Dubai. And uh, every now and again you would see uh, a member of the royal family. That's how the country was governed, still by the royal tribal families. And uh, inevitably, surrounding a member of the royal family would be this huge entourage. And you'd just have no idea who these people were, like 50 or 60 people. Um, you'd wonder, how did they get access to the, this member of the royal family? What are they doing following him around? Just this huge spectacle. Uh, you didn't really know who they were, but you knew at least a couple of things. Uh, they knew the royalty, and so they must be really, really important. And that's kind of what we have going on in this passage. Uh, maybe you noticed talk about uh, 24 elders surrounding God's throne. If we had kept reading, you'd get to these four living creatures with eyes covering, uh, eyes covering them. We don't really know what these are, but we know at least that they seem to be part of God's entourage. And they must know God. God has let them into his inner circle, as it were, and so they must be pretty important. So what do they teach us about God? Well, uh, maybe you notice the phrase again and again, everything was before the throne, before the, God's throne. They're surrounding God. They're completely centered on God. And again, if we had kept reading, we would see them worshiping God, falling down before him. So God's entourage puts God at the center. God is at the center. God is, is what they worship. And the question for us this morning is, uh, what's at the center of our lives? We're all centering ourselves around something. 
Something is giving us meaning. Something is propelling us, uh, giving us a sense of hope. And for this uh, mysterious company around God, it's God. He's at the center. Um, Vern Poitras, he uh, wrote a really helpful little guide to the book of Revelation. And uh, like was mentioned earlier, you really need help to read this book because it's, it's a strange genre. We don't write like they used to write like this. Uh, and he called this scene that we're reading about um, the heart of the universe, the heart of meaning, and the heart of history. The heart of meaning. This is it. This is the heart of it all. And that might seem like a provocative statement, but if you think about it, this is where God is. This is where his raw presence is opened up and we get a view of it. This is where he's seated on his throne, uh, controlling everything. This is the control center of the universe, uh, Poitras called it. This is the center of it all. And so the question is, what would it look like if we, like God's entourage, if we made God the center of our lives, or if we recentered ourselves on God? The good thing is that this text tells us how. We're going to look at just three things from the text, three items from the scene. Uh, we're going to look at the door, which can show us how do we get to God. We're going to look at the jewel, which shows us what we see when we get to God. And third and finally, we'll look at the storm, which shows us how we can have a relationship with God. And just remember, the idea of how do we get to God, what is he like when we see him, how do we have a relationship with him, that might seem like that's Christianity 101. This is, this is the ABCs of Christianity, but this is also the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is to get to God. It's to see him. It's to have a relationship with him. And so we always need to be thinking of these questions. Okay, let's look at the door. This is the Apostle John speaking, by the way. He's the one having this vision. And notice right away, right, right as the scene opens up, there's a sense of awe and wonder. And this is what he says. John says, after I looked, and behold, that's an important word, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And it, it seems amazing, right? There's a door open to heaven. I wonder what's on the other side. Uh, and even our culture today, in a sense, wonders what's on the other side of this door. Um, that's why books and movies like Heaven is for Real or you know, 90 Minutes in Heaven, that's why they sell so well. Um, we want to know what's on the other side, and it's amazing that John sees this, but we should really take a pause and remember that this is not how it's supposed to be. What do I mean? There's not supposed to be a door between us and God. But yeah, it's amazing that, there, that there's a door in the first place and that it's open, but there's not supposed to be a door in the first place. See, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, we're at the end now, if you go back to the beginning, we don't really know what this looked like, uh, if you saw it, but somehow God... And the first human couple walked together in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day. They could talk to each other like you would talk to the person next to you. Completely unhindered access between people and God. There was no door. But when we sinned, when sin came into the world, the door between us and God was closed. And we are now on the outside. Um, Robert Frost, the poet, he talked about how uh, the meaning of poetry comes out not just in the words, like the dic dictionary definitions of the words, but also in the sound of the poetry as it's read, uh, as you read it out loud. There's a lyrical quality to it. And he said, actually, it's kind of like 
when you hear a conversation on the other side of a closed door. You can hear the tempo, you can hear the volume go up and down, you can hear the speed of the conversation, and you can actually learn a lot about what's being said without ever hearing any of the words being spoken. Uh, That sounds nice, but unfortunately that's kind of how it is with us and God, unless he opens the door. See, we can sense things about him in nature. Uh, We can uh, know certain things about him vaguely, but we're not really in on the conversation, again, until he opens the door. Sin cuts us off from God. It closes us off. Um, several decades ago, there was a man named uh, Rudolf Otto. He was a German theologian, and he was a comparative religion scholar. And interestingly, he, he looked at the, the spiritual experiences of people across the globe, I mean, as different and as varied as you can imagine. And the one thing that he found in common among all the experiences was, was not a sense of goodness. It wasn't a sense of love or warmth or welcome or hope, although those things were there. But what what Otto noticed in common with all spiritual experiences was a sense of almost dread, of awestruck wonder, of actually threat. See? Why? This is the closed door. Uh, Spiritual experiences across the globe notice that we're not really in touch with what we're sensing. There's something closing us off. We're, we're, we're seeking something, some higher reality, some higher presence, but we're, we're cut off. The door is closed. Until, of course, we come to our passage. Until, of course, we come to Christianity where the door is opened wide open. And this is so interesting. This, this is continuing to happen today. Just uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, she's a scientist, she's an author, and she says she's an atheist. She wrote about what she called a a mystical experience she had. And uh, she said she's never been able to shake off this experience. And this is how she described it. She says, It was a furious encounter with a living substance that was coming at me through all things at once, too vast and violent to hold on to, too heartbreakingly beautiful to let go of. I felt ecstatic and somehow completed, but also shattered. You see, she says she's an atheist, but she... She says, whatever she was experiencing, whatever she thought it really was, she says it shattered her. It was violent. Okay. And let's consider even some more orthodox examples, some more familiar examples. So when the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk has a vision of God, what God is going to do in the future, this is what he says. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. This is an Old Testament prophet. Or how about Daniel? He has a vision of the glory of God, and he says, No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. I fell on my face in deep sleep, and my face to the ground. Or even John, the very one who's having this vision that we just read about in Revelation chapter 4, just moments before, saw the glory of God. And here's what John says, When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. These are believers, and unless God picks them back up again, when they encounter God, they fall down. Right? There's a sense of dread, and God has to raise them up again. So unless God opens the door to us, we're closed off from him. And you know, the same reason that the door was closed between us and God in the first place is the same reason that the door between us and anything that we love is closed. 
See, sin always, you could say, closes the door. Sin always cuts us off from something that we love. And so, okay, a more uh, domestic example. When I uh, take a toy for my daughter uh, as a consequence for something that she's done, I'm closing the door. I'm cutting her off from something that she really wants, right? Um, Or in a relationship, if one person has, I don't know, snubbed another person, withheld love, uh, the door between those two people is closed a little bit. There's, There's less warmth. There's less intimacy. There's less fellowship. The relationship grows colder. See, all sin closes us off. It closes the door between us and something that we love. So we're not only closed off from God, but we're closed off from one another. Um, C.S. Lewis um, gave an address. It was later turned into an essay, maybe you've heard of it, called The Inner Ring. And uh, Lewis talks about how most of our adult lives, he says, we're trying to get into some inner ring. And we're terribly afraid that we're going to be left out. What he means is, um, there's always a circle of people who are in the know. This can happen at work. Um, this can happen in bigger family circles. It can even happen in church. Cliques, groups of friends, people who are really in the know. And Lewis says, we press on and on and on and inward and inward and inward. And he says, we never really feel like we're quite in. And why is this? Because we're closed off from God. We're closed off. But here's the amazing thing. John doesn't just see a door to heaven. He doesn't just see an open door to heaven, but he actually gets through the door. And this is where Christianity is utterly unique. You see, my my Muslim friends in Dubai, they also would say, oh yeah, uh, we, we can access God. We can maybe see his glory. We can maybe sense him. But nobody says, like Christianity, that you can actually go through the door into God's very presence. This is utterly unique. And so what do we learn about how we can get to God? or how we can get back to him. Just notice a few things with me. Uh, The door that John sees is up in heaven, right? What that means is, it wasn't, we didn't close the door, God closed it. We can't reach it. And if God is the one who has to close the door, he's the one who has to open the door for us, meaning God has to initiate a relationship with us. us. And uh, notice too that, when John is summoned up, uh, how is he going to get up? He can't, he can't jump up. He can't fly up. What happens? The Spirit of God draws him up through the door. God doesn't just initiate with us to bring us to himself. He has to bring us all the way to himself. He brings us in. And uh, this is a preview of where we're going this morning. But we only get to God through Christ. We only get to God through Christ. If we had... Uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, you know, the ones that kind of highlight where Jesus is speaking, you'd notice that when uh, John is told in verse 1 to come up here, it's actually Jesus speaking. And just earlier in Revelation, Jesus says things like, I have the keys of death and of Hades. What does that mean? Or he says, I have the key of David. I open and no one can shut. He's the one who opens the door between us and God. We get in through Christ. So if God opens the door, if the Spirit brings John to God, if he, if he can only access God through Jesus, then what does John do? Um, a couple of things. Notice that sense of wonder I mentioned in verse 1. 
He says, John says, I looked and behold, a door opened to God. And then John hears the summons to come up to heaven. So what do we do? What, what is our part in, in getting to God and going back to God? Well, it's, it's a sense of awe and wonder at God's way of salvation. And it's listening to his summons willingly. And you know what? God does the rest. God brings us to himself. And you know what's especially refreshing? If C.S. Lewis is right, that we spend so much of our lives worrying about being included or worrying about being excluded from some circle, some group of friends, whether it's at work or somewhere else, you know what's so encouraging about this? What's the ultimate inner ring? What's the ultimate inner circle? Wouldn't it be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What if you were led into that inner ring? What if you were led into the confidence of that ring? Well, they're in this passage too. Presumably it's, it's God on the throne. He's portrayed as the creator. If you read through the rest of the chapter, it's the Spirit who brings John up, and it's the Son who summons John up. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're inviting John in. And if we have been brought into that circle, then we should never worry about being excluded from any kind of circle. There should never be any clicks. If God has opened the ultimate door for us into his very confidence, into his very presence, can't we open the door for other people? What does that look like? Can't we open the door into people's lives? Let them in, even if they're not like us? At work, can't you open doors for other people? If you have been led into this inner circle, if this door has been opened to you, we should let others in. This is the door. This is how we learn, how we get back to God. But second, what about when John gets in? What does John see? Let's look at the jewel. Looked at the door, let's look at the jewel, which shows us what do we see when we get to God. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 3. John sees God himself seated on the throne. He says, I saw one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. This is how God decides to reveal himself. Uh, gemstones, right? beauty. This is what John sees when he, ha- he has an unmediated vision of God. He sees gemstones, right? jasper, carnelian. So what do we learn here? Uh, first of all, gemstones are captivating, right? If you see somebody with a brand new uh, engagement ring on, <clears throat> as long as it's not too nice, you want to go see it? <laughs> it it's just... Uh, it's captivating. You, you just want to go see it, and they want to show it off to you. Um, gemstones are captivating. And what is God telling us? He's saying, come see me. Right, be captivated by me. Draw close. Look at me closely. See what I'm like. And, of course, gemstones are captivating because they're beautiful. Um, it, see, when John sees God, notice what he doesn't see. He doesn't just see like a pile of gold coins. What do I mean? Well, you can have, I don't know, $10,000 in one hand, and you can have a gemstone in another hand, and maybe they're worth the same thing, right? But the value of the money is in its ability to buy the gemstone, whereas the, the value of the gemstone is the gem itself. See, God is beautiful. He's an end in and of himself. He, he's a goal. He should be our goal. That's what his beauty is telling us to be captivated by him, to, to, to draw near to him and be enthralled by him and to find him an end in and of himself, 
a beauty and a delight just for his own sake. Uh, you know, for the majority of uh, Christian history, <clears throat> um, theologians, <clears throat> church leaders would go actually to the Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon, and they would use it as kind of their devotional prayer language. It was a language of intimacy with God. And remember that God portrays himself as uh, not just our Lord and Master, not just our Father, not just our Shepherd, but also our spouse. He's the husband of the church. And so they would go to the Song of Solomon to give themselves uh, a language of intimacy with God. And there's one place in the Song of Solomon that's just so amazing. If we think about it in terms of our relationship with God. So the woman in this song, it's not clear whether she's betrothed or whether she's married, but she says this about uh, the bridegroom. She says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. And she says this, In his shade I took great delight and sat down. When was the last time you said that about God? In his shade I took great delight and just sat down. I, I, I forgot my needs for just a moment. I forgot to ask him for anything. I was just completely content just to be with him. Just to enjoy his presence. I didn't even say anything. I just sat down and took great delight and was refreshed. It is so easy for our hearts to begin wanting so many other things than God, isn't it? But what if we saw his beauty like John did and were so captivated by it that we could just bask in it? You know, there are some people that uh, are so captivating. We want to surround ourselves uh, with them. We want to become like them. We want them to rub off on us. Um, and that's what happens when we're with God. Maybe you notice the, the first thing that John sees when he sees God is this jasper stone. Well, at the end of Revelation, you know what the first thing John sees when he sees the church, which incidentally is called the bride? Here's what he says. John sees the church having the glory of God. Its radiance was like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. See, the first thing that John sees when he sees God's beauty is the first thing that John sees when he sees the church's beauty. If you're with him, you will begin to have the kind of radiance that God has. People will know that you've been with God. <clears throat> his beauty, his love, his joy will become yours. You'll become like him. And let, let's apply this at least a couple more ways before we move on. Um, remember Vern Poitras, who I mentioned at the beginning, he called this very scene the heart of meaning, the heart of history, the heart of the universe. And if that's true, what we find there is really important, but we find beauty there. And if, if beauty is at the heart of everything, if beauty is at the heart of meaning, then it cannot be something that we just leave out of our lives. Right? We need to experience beauty in our lives. If it's so central to God, if it's in God's very presence where John sees this amazing beauty, we need it in our lives. And we can't just um, take time out of our lives to experience beauty, whether it's, whether it's music, whether it's just being outside, uh, whether it's uh, uh, seeing art, whatever it may be. It has to be part of our lives. Um, there's been some research done uh, recently at the University of South Carolina. 
uh, not informed by Revelation chapter 4, but confirming, I think, Revelation chapter 4, uh, what they're finding is, and they looked at, uh, I think, five or six big cities and what we're making, what we're contributing to people's happiness, and they found that the traditional markers of happiness like uh, wealth, freedom, career, family, were not as uh, predictive of people's happiness as some other things. Here's what they found. Happiness is most easily attained by living in an aesthetically beautiful city. And this can be generalized. It doesn't have to be in a city. That's just where they looked. Here's what they said. The things people constantly were surrounded by, lovely architecture, history, green spaces, cobblestone streets, had the greatest effect on their happiness. The cumulative positive effects of daily beauty worked subtly but strongly. That's from the realm of science. Uh, Philosopher uh, from Princeton, uh, Alexander Niemus, he says beauty gives us hope. And here's how he puts it. He says, when you are really struck by something beautiful, when, when something really takes your breath away, it gives you hope because it reminds you that there's more to this world than you had realized. There's more to life than you were factoring in, maybe in your discouragement. And you're struck by something beautiful and you go, wow, maybe there's more to this. Maybe there's more to life that I've forgotten or haven't yet discovered. Um, but this philosopher Nehemiah also says uh, there's a great danger to beauty, to seeking meaning. Why? Because he says <clears throat> we can look for it, we can want it, and never find it. So we're disappointed. Uh, or if we find it, we're disappointed by what we found. That's why he calls beauty dangerous. We, we need it. We sense that we were made to have contact with it, that we were made to experience this ultimate beauty and fulfillment in our lives, but it's always eluding us. It's always disappointing us when we think that we found it. And you know what? John's vision in the throne room confirms this, confirms that we need this kind of beauty, confirms that we need the hope of coming in contact with it, of seeing it face to face. And why is it that we're always disappointed by what we find? It's because we're not looking at God's beauty. And it's interesting, too. You know, Nehemiah said that beauty is dangerous because it can disappoint us. But the beauty that John sees when he sees God is also dangerous, but it's dangerous uh, for a very different reason. Um, As John is looking at God and he sees this jasper stone, this carnelian gemstone, he sees something else right afterward, and it seems like it might threaten this whole uh, wonderful encounter with God. What does John see? Glance with me at uh, verse 5. John says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. What does John see? Rumbling, lightning, fire. He's seeing a storm. This is a a cataclysmic storm. Uh, You notice he's saying rumblings and peals of thunder and lightning. These terms are being heaped on one another to add emphasis. This is not just any ordinary storm. This is a a cataclysmic storm in God's very presence. And it's coming from him. It's coming from the throne. And just to to play off our uh, gemstone imagery... It's like John is captivated by this gem. Like you're maybe in a jewelry store, you're just you just fell in love with this piece of jewelry, and then you look at the sticker, <laughs> and you're like, "This is out of my league." Is that what God is like? 
just as John is captivated by him, seems to be invited in, there's a storm which pushes John back. Is that what God is like? Not quite. We looked at the door, which shows us how we can get to God. The jewel, which shows us the beauty that we see when we see God. And third, let's look at the storm. shows us how we can have a relationship with him. This is a pretty strange storm, though. See, I said it's a cataclysmic storm. It's in God's very presence. But notice something else. Look at verse 6 at the very end. John says, so the storm is before God's throne, but also he says in verse 6, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, this seems pretty strange, right? There's, there's a storm on top of the sea, but the sea is perfectly calm. So what's going on here? Well, remember that Storms in the Bible generally, when they come when God is there, are not good. <laughs> and especially in the book of Revelation, when you see a storm, it's a, it's a, it's a sign of God's judging presence. Okay? But when you see a sea, symbolically speaking, across the Bible, a sea, generally speaking, is a, a sign of the chaos of living in this world. Uh, it's like the chaos of living on the open sea. You, just, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you never know if a storm is going to sweep up and threaten you. And especially in Revelation, the sea symbolizes the chaos of living in this world. So let's put the two images together again. You have the storm standing for God's judging presence, his stormy presence, and then you have the sea, which represents uh, our life in this world. But what's happening here? See, we looked at the beginning about a big theme across the Bible, And it's this, how is God going to open the door back up to us again? But another theme that runs through the whole Bible is, once God opens the door to us and brings us in, how is he going to have a relationship with us? How is he going to live with us? How are we going to be in his presence? What this storm and what the sea tell us is that God's judging presence is no longer threatening life in this world. Somehow the storm of God's presence is not threatening the sea anymore. The the sea is perfectly calm. It's perfectly at peace, which means that God has made peace with this world somehow. But like I said, this is a pretty strange storm. Um, Somehow God has made peace with this world. but, But how is this? Notice what else John sees in the storm. It was back up in verse 3. Maybe you, you noticed it. Uh, John says, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. When else do we see a rainbow? Noah, right? And what happened when the rainbow appeared? What did it signify to Noah? That God's judgment was over. Right? The storm was over and the rainbow appeared. God said, my judgment is complete. So the rainbow and the calm sea shows us that God's judgment is over. His judgment is complete. We can have peace with God. But it still doesn't really tell us exactly how God has done this. Remember the preview that we got right at the beginning? Who is it who's calling John up to heaven? Remember, it's Jesus. He tells John, come up here, John. Come up to God. And this is, this is Jesus who comes down into this stormy chaos of life in this world into John's life, who, by the way, at the moment of this vision, is in exile on an island for his faith. That's a storm, right? 
Jesus comes down into the storms of our life. You know, this is not the first time, though, that Jesus has showed up with John in a storm. It's not the first time John was with Jesus in a storm. When was that? They were in a boat together, right? What happened then? Jesus calmed the storm then. But that's still not the only time that John was with Jesus in a storm. Remember who was by Jesus when he was on the cross? Which disciple? Jesus went into an ultimate storm, the same storm that we're seeing in this passage, the storm of God's presence. And when Jesus went into that storm, he had no one to calm the storm for him, like John does, like we do. When Jesus was on the cross, the door between him and God was slammed shut. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from God. He was closed off from God, not for his own sin, but for yours, for mine. The beauty of God was hidden from his sight. He lost his beauty when he came into this world. He gave it up. He veiled it. And when he was in the storm of God's judgment for us, he sank. So that the storm would no longer threaten us. And we could have that perfect peace and stillness with God. Okay. To close, let's think out a couple implications of this. <clears throat> we've, uh, we've been in heaven <laughs> this whole time, so let's try to get down to earth. Um, this is a heavenly vision. And the still, calm sea that John sees is showing us that we can have peace with God. But that peace has not worked itself into this world completely, has it? Are we still suffer? Like I said, John, who's having this vision, is in exile. Okay. So what does John need to see when he's in exile? He needs to see God on his throne. Why? Because God is in control when you're suffering. When there's a storm, as it were, God is still on the throne. He hasn't stepped off. He hasn't forgotten. He's still up there ruling over everything. <clears throat> John Newton, uh, who was a pastor, he was the author of Amazing Grace. He wrote a lot of pastoral letters uh, as used to be done a lot more commonly. And here's what he wrote to a friend um, along the lines of what we've been saying this morning. John Newton said this, We are sure that the Lord reigns, right? that he's on his throne. We are sure that the Lord reigns and that the storm is guided by the hands which were nailed to the cross and that as he loves his own, he will take care of them. Jesus is with us in our storm. And if he's calmed the ultimate storm that we had to face, God's judgment, he will be with us in our little storms, which he'll calm one day as well. And finally, uh, notice that when John sees the rainbow, it, did you notice he describes it like an emerald? Isn't that kind of strange? I thought the rainbow was lots of colors. Why is it an emerald? Well, here's one thing that we can say. It seems to be that when... Uh, John sees the rainbow, he's seeing actually the most precious gemstone in the scene. See, it's not when he sees God that he sees the emerald, which is the more precious gem, but it's when he sees the rainbow, which is the sign of God's salvation. What do we learn from that? If you really want to see God's beauty on full display, if you really want to be captivated by God, look at the way of his salvation through Christ. That's where his beauty is on full display. John says, I saw an, a, a rainbow and it had the appearance of an emerald. And when you're suffering, when you're going through a kind of storm, 
look up at the rainbow of God's peace, be captivated by that, and Jesus is with you just as much as he was with John here. And if you are struck by that, it will be enough to get you through. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for pulling the curtain back a little bit so that we can see you. We thank you for opening the door a little bit this morning so that we can see you. To get back to you, to recenter our lives around you, to see your glory and your beauty, and to have a relationship of peace with you. So, Father, we pray that through your Son you would be with us in the storm and that we could look up at the rainbow of your peace that you've made with us through Christ and that you would bring us through. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.